Welcome to another episode of the History of Networking at the Network Collective. On this episode, we have Bruce Pinsky and Terry Slattery discussing the history of the first expert-level infrastructure certification, the Cisco Certified Internetworking Expert. So grab a pile of cookies, sit back, and listen in as we meld with the finest minds in networking. So let's begin with motivation. So why was the CCIA developed? Well, Russ, one of the primary drivers, I think, was that around the time um, that we created CCIE, we had also started putting in like layers of of support engineers and attack. And there were a number of people who would like call in and they would have to deal with, with the basic questions. And they were getting, being asked things that were like, look, I've troubleshot this thing already. I know what I'm doing. Um, and there was some, we wanted some way to, to be able to distinguish the people who really didn't know what they were doing and really would have gone through all the steps. And if they were calling in, it was a bug or it was the hardware and it should just be replaced and kind of make, take, it on, take them on their word that they, they knew what they were doing. So there really needed to be some way to identify these people. And so we thought that through a test of their skills, we could then be able to know that those people um, knew what they were doing. Oh, so does it work when you're calling your local cable company, Bruce? No, it doesn't work when I call my <laughs> cable company. I, I can ask you one of the reasons I have business internet, because if I have business internet, I have a, a, a better chance of actually getting somebody to go the clue. So. I actually had an experience one time calling into uh, to my local ISP where they actually looked me up. I didn't tell them to, they just did. And it was amazing how dramatically the conversation changed. <laughs> but, but usually that's not the case. Usually you try to say something like, you know, like if you give any indication what that you know what you're doing, it doesn't help. It's interesting that you say that, Bruce, because, um, you know, that, that was one of the, the big advantages for a number of years was that idea that you could step in and, and, and kind of skip some of the, that early nonsense. I think it's one of the things that's missed today is because that's no longer the case. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you, get, you get the uh, local ISP you know, support experience when you call in. There's no, no yeah, more send, on the tax side. Send me the show tech. Send me the, you know, yeah. the, yeah. the process and the procedure is there, definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. interesting. Now, I, heard, I heard a slightly different take on that. Okay, go ahead. Which was that the, the TAC was being slammed with so many calls from people trying to f- configure this really challenging iOS or, you know, at that time it was not called iOS, but this challenging network box. And one way to, to handle the TAC load was to educate people and, and test and certify them that they knew what they were doing. And of course, as we just said, you could call in and you could escalate immediately uh, past the first level of, of support. So I, my, my suspicion is there were multiple reasons, yes. multiple motivations. And I suspect there might have even been a motivation in there someplace around the CNE was around, the CPE was around. Does anybody even know what those are? Anyway, <laughs> and so maybe there was a bit of a feeling of we got to get in this game as well. And maybe a bit of a feeling of if we educate people, they'll go buy Cisco. I think there was less on on that side of it, Russ, Um, at least based on on a little bit of conversation I've had with Scott Edwards. Um, Scott was actually hired in at Cisco to run this program. He was a program manager there. And he reported to Brad Wright, who was, uh, let's see. So Brad was manager of advanced customer systems at the time. ACS, yeah. Yep. And uh, Scott Edwards was program manager. Um, the other fellow involved in this was Doug Allred, who was head of customer oh. advocacy. So he, <laughs> oh he was the VP in charge of, of that. So they cooked up this idea. Of, and, and the other interesting thing here is the program used to be called Top Gun because the yep. movie had just come out uh, within a year or two about these Navy fighters who fighter pilots that were the top of the, you know, the best of the best sort of yep. thing. So who was the top gun? And so um, Scott said it, it was actually fairly challenging there for a little bit to, to try to get them to rename the program into something else because top gun was, was probably not going to play well in some environments <laughs> yeah. as well as being a copyright problem potentially. Which is interesting because when you got your CCIE for a while, and this is, I don't know how long this lasted. Oh, for a long you time. Got a, you got a bomber jacket. Well, well you, and, some and people you could, got one. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, exactly. I, I didn't get one. I didn't get one either. <laughs> Come on. You make no, you had to build it early. I don't think the earliest people actually got them given to them. I think that there was the opportunity to buy one, but I think, yes. and I think the program was too nascent at the time. I don't think it did. It was just like, Hey, let's get some tech engineers certified. Let's get a few people through the program externally. So it was, I think that the, the actual um, giving of the jacket uh, came a little bit later, maybe in a year or more, more in that would be interesting to ask Scott that. Yeah. It would be interesting to know that because yeah. I definitely got one. It was, it was, so what's your number, Bruce? I'm one zero four five, which and makes Terry. me the twenty first CCIE. Okay, and Terry, one zero two six makes Terry number two. <laughs> right. So I'm twenty six thirty five. You're wondering. And the first one. Okay, Do sorry. I, Go ahead, Jordan. <laughs> Wait, no, I don't want to. After 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 all these really short numbers. <laughs> and what's what's really sad is 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 I could have been I could have been a little earlier, but I was sent on site to customer sites so often that I wasn't around. So they just started certifying other people in front of me. So <laughs> good excuse. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened to me too. <laughs> oh man that's funny yeah but uh Stuart, Stuart biggs actually got the first number and his was uh july of 1993 correct okay my certification was august of 1993 and i was right at the beginning of december of 1993 yeah so i'm in uh, november of, of 1996 or thereabouts mm -hmm. a couple of years later. I'm just going to leave myself muted for this whole conversation. <laughs> go. I'll ask some questions later, I think. <laughs> also, most recently, Phil Remaker um, um, recertified. He, he had gone to Emeritus for a while and he's um, he's active again. So uh, he's he's the oldest, as far as I know, he's the oldest active Cisco CCIE. Um, so yeah, there there aren't a lot of us who have stuck it out this long. Yeah, right. It is kind of crazy. Waiting on the thirty year ribbon before I go emeritus. Is that it? I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> Next year is twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's this year. Uh, yeah, that's this year. No, no, they actually round up. It's it's this year um, minus like a month and a half. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> and they always round up. So it's always the next year. So wow. this crazy. year was, was counted as 24, even though if you ignore the months, it's 25 years. But if you count the months, it's like 24.8. Ah. So, so going back through the history of it, I mean, it began in 93 and then I know that it went through some ugly periods here and there, particularly around when the recertification started, as I recall, it was about 98 or 99. There was a period when I know that uh, I got involved in writing questions because Don Slice, Alvaro Atana, James Ng, and I all four failed our recertifications. And uh, <laughs> we thought that was a little bit odd. <laughs> So we went and complained. So, I mean, are there any other points in the history that you can remember for the CCIE? I mean, like, when did the first specialization come out beyond RNS? When did the CCIE become CCIE RNS? Because that's an interesting entire problem in and of itself. Does anybody remember that? I don't remember when that happened. I think the second CCIE or, or the specialization was CCIE Blue which was yeah, the IBM really. certification, right? So, the, mm -hmm. because you needed to know so much about SNA and stuff in order to yeah. um, to do the the, the Cisco uh, IBM stuff, and so they, they wanted people who were certified in that. Um, they did the they did ISP dial at one. I was going to say I think ISP dial was after Blue. Might have been, and I, I don't recall after that. So yeah, after that it seems to have exploded. So you know there seems to have now once the idea caught on, it was a lot. Now what about the partner program? When did that come in and start making a difference in the partner program? Does anybody know that? Because that's something I never really kept track of. Like all of a sudden, partners were saying we get a discount if we get a CCIE, and I'm not really you know. There was that, but there was also um, some early stuff going on with um, 
with partners, um, there, there was one thing that, that Scott Edwards had told me was that um, some of the international partners were like, oh, but it's really embarrassing to fail the exam. <laughs> we, we can't have that. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so there was that. And then also in the really early days, uh, Cisco wound up hiring some of the first CCIEs that were minted <laughs> from partners. That didn't go over well with those partners. So uh, the end result was thou shall not hire from partners. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting as well. So, yeah. So any other bits of history that y'all can recall about the CCIA and its development and everything? Because, I mean, those seem like to be waypoints to me. I know that, Bruce, you were involved several years ago in moving it to a virtual lab, right? Correct. Right. So So, um, around... 2009, I think it was when we we were looking, they were looking to do the next refresh. And we decided that um, we needed to add troubleshooting back in that there wasn't anything in the explicitly in the exam anymore, that tested troubleshooting once they once they took the lab to to one day and didn't break your lab and such. um, There was no specific diagnostic skills being tested. So we wanted to put um, troubleshooting in and we, we figured out that there was no way to run like two topologies on the same gear. And that honestly, you know, 10 devices in a rack wasn't a whole lot of troubleshooting there. So we, we took the, the virtualization that Cisco used internally and built a, um, a platform for, for delivering uh, online labs. We kicked that off first and used it in, um, in the CCIE lab. And then uh, later on, we, we actually took that platform, started offering uh, CCIE labs at uh, Networkers and Cisco Live, so which eventually morphed into what today is the walk-in self-paced labs, where it's a combination both of hardware platform and, um, and uh, virtual labs that you can take. And uh, if anybody's ever done um, um, any of the CCNA level labs uh, online, those are driven from the, from that same platform. So, yeah. So that's IOU, correct? It was IOU. IOU was originally, yeah, that's what was around then. Uh, iOS on, on Unix and iOS on, iOS on Linux. So, yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, and, to, and there was sausage loader in there and stuff like that. That Yeah. And then eventually they, they, in the, in the next refresh, which was a few years ago, I think it was ver- version six, I believe they uh, virtualized the entire lab. So the, the config section is virtualized and the, um, and the, and the troubleshooting section was virtualized. It's virtualized as well. Yeah. yeah. Put that in perspective. Um, the original lab was a two day test that incorporated building the lab and then you had to leave the room and they uh, the the proctors would go back and break it yeah and they were doing things like put in bad cables uh turn cables around flip them over because some of the cables could go in either way if you were a little evil um doing things in the configs and you had to go back in and fix it all Right. And so, for example, if you go back and look at an AGS plus um, at the time, there were there were controller cards in the front and there were cables that connected to the connectors in the back called appliques. And so, like, if you had a two a two um, port controller board, say for token ring, you, um, somebody might like in, in my lab, they swap it, <laughs> raise your hands, plug you... in one cable and the other the other port would beacon and it would be like what's going on here? That doesn't make any sense. So it was, it was always tricky. And I think Russ brings up changing out boot proms and other. Yeah, oh, that's, that's what crazy. they did on my lab. My lab, they actually changed the boot prom on the AGS plus in the hardware switchers. I mean, you could do it in software and hardware. So most people did it in software. So you didn't think about the hardware being there. Yep. And so you would actually, they would actually, uh, Alan would go in, who was the, my lab proctor would go in and actually change the hardware boot prom settings. So it would boot to like, base image or something and not run part of the driver for getting rid of the second day of the lab was it came at the point in time when you didn't have to touch your hardware anymore so you didn't have to actually build your lab up like terry remembers we actually had to like set up terminal servers ourselves before you could even start configuring and you're basically given an empty set of empty chassis and a whole box full of cards and boxes of cables and put it all together that was it (laughs) 
And and so what happened was when, when people stopped touching the hardware and all they were doing was config uh, changes then or configuration, the only way to break their lab effectively was to change config. Now, if you've just spent an entire day working through your config and you um, – and you, in many cases have written stuff down. So you've probably committed a good deal of it to memory. What they found was by this uh, on the second day, uh, the, the troubleshooting section didn't really accomplish anything anymore because there wasn't as many things to go diagnose if it was only just config. I think they also kind of, there was a period early on when the troubleshooting section was just evil. I mean, it was just flat out evil. Like <laughs> Terry says, right? Right. Yeah. I, mean, I, remember, I remember the 60 pin cables with the pushed in pins that weren't fully pushed in. So by oh. visual observation, you couldn't actually see that the pin was pushed in, but it wouldn't make contact because it wasn't quite long enough to reach all the way into the socket. And um, I remember Alan changing. I had named my, um, my term server when I had built my term server. Um, you know, like 2501A, 2501B for all the port numbers I had built jumps so I could jump directly into anything by typing in the name. And any place there was a one in the host name, he had changed it to a lowercase L. Oh, wonderful. So, so, so none of my jumps work, which was like, come on, that's not even real troubleshooting. That's just like, that's just annoying. <laughs> right. So I, I think you're right, though. I mean, I think as people, you know, you got out of the term server world where people are actually telnetting in via a, a, an Ethernet port, um, then the troubleshooting section, which was primarily focused on hardware and some configuration stuff became kind of more difficult to uh, actually troubleshoot that way. Yeah, well, the, early, early troubleshooting was actually very valuable because that was a good number of the original problems that people had is, oh, your applique died or yeah. you know, the cable's not plugged in all the way and, and stuff like that. Yeah, or upside down. Or, yeah, or somebody put it upside down and it's okay. So how do you diagnose that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, that was very real and being able to configure things very quickly was, was definitely something you had to be able to do and figure out a bad line card while you were putting it all together. Cause like Terry said, it was just a, there was a box of line cards. Yeah. You, you, you couldn't even call it a you couldn't even call it a lab at the at the in the beginning. It was yeah. it was like a storage room with a bunch of a bunch of stuff piled in the corner and a couple racks. That was about the extent of the lab. Yeah, pretty much. It, it was much later when they actually built up a proper um, lab environment. You got to see racks. I didn't. <laughs> it was all just so damn new at the time. Well, I, wow. I, uh, when I took it, we they had uh, they, we had added ISDN to it, or Stuart had added ISDN to it. Mm -hmm. And the problem was was that you, if you remember there were two standards for for um, for ISDN. There was AT and T's and there was Nortels, right? And um, and um, but they, they, they were only slightly different. And the, the ISDN we got from, from Pat Bell was, um, the, the Nortel variant. Right. And there were some, some bugs in, in our code for that. And so I could never make it work, but then we figured out, well, it was never going to work cause it's bugs. So, and, and we got, we filed, filed a bug on it. So, <laughs> so, so some things never change. No, <laughs> it's, it's really what I'm hearing from that, because even when I took the lab, there was, you know, uh, some things you just skipped. Right. Like it's there, mm -hmm. you, you, but you skip it and go back to it later because the chances of it actually running, even if you got the configuration right, was like 50 50. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I've had some I've had some things in the, the training side of things where <clears throat> look at a config that a, a class has put together and go, OK, everything here is right. Let's just reboot everything and you reboot it and all comes up fine. Yep. That was that was PFR in my lab, PFR V2. I mean, it was just there's no point in configuring it, which, of course, now I'm, you know, <laughs> clearly stating how much later I am than all of you in this process. But <laughs> yeah, because you call it you're calling it PFR. So. It was OER. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, optimized edge routing. Yeah. OER. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, which, Ross, you want to tell the story of where OER came from? No, no. This is a CCA. We'll, we'll talk about that on another show. We'll talk about that on another show. Another show. <laughs> Well, we'll get Dana on that one and talk about that. So what other interesting CCIA history stories? I mean, now where we are today is kind of, um, there's a lot of people out there with CCIAs. What's the last number we have out? 
I don't even know. Oh, I, I yeah, think it, we're it, it, we're about to cross sixty k. I think. Yeah, I think it's pretty close to sixty k. Yeah. Um, so, what do you think gave the CCIE in its earlier days that kind of cachet where people really wanted it? I mean, like we've had the CCDA, CCDE out for a few years, and people don't seem to be glomming onto it as much. And the CCAR, they're still. I think the I think the the thing that was really appealing. Not uh, until they did the partner thing where people were like had a real material reason to do it. And then they ultimately started requiring partners to have CCIEs. But I think the really big attraction was there was there were so many of these paper search you could do. You know, you could do Novell, right? You there were all these really paper awesome. search you could do. And all you had to do is take a test. And it didn't really require you to demonstrate anything. It was, I can take a test and I passed, yay. And I think the CCIE earned its prestige from the idea that you had to demonstrate your skills. You took a test to get qualified and then you had to demonstrate your skill set and not just in building the, the network, but but diagnosing um, things along the way and, in, and explicitly things that were broken. And I, I think it was viewed as a prestigious ex exam and a real life, real world um, type exam that people were like, hey, if you got CSA, you must be really good. I also tend to think that there was this thing at the very beginning. <clears throat> I mean, we're talking 93. So this is the very beginning of network engineering. A lot of people don't realize, I mean, this is very, very, very early in even the concepts that we're talking about in terms of networking. So this was actually one of the first certifications, it feels like to me, that was out there other than like the CME and stuff like that. It was the first infrastructure certification, as I said in the beginning. I mean, there were no other infrastructure um, certifications that I know of. I think there was one from 3Com because Stuart Biggs oh, had, yeah, there was had uh, developed a bunch of stuff at 3Com, and then he came over to Cisco, and he was tapped to do the CCA program at Cisco because of his experience doing the one at 3Com. I think you're right, Terry, if I remember. I think there was one at 3Com. That's correct. And Who the heck wants a 3Com certification? Never mind. <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing here is the um, the the justification for this, was, or, or sorry, the the education. How you actually learned all this stuff um, really didn't exist. There, you couldn't go out and buy mm -hmm. the you know the two inch thick book that told you how to go train and get educated on this stuff. Um, you had to go read RFCs and things like that. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I, when I was in tech and I said, I think I'm going to do the CCIA thing. And basically <clears throat> Alvaro walked over to my desk and like took the 12 or not even 12, must've been 10 documentation and threw it on my desk and said, read this. Good luck. Yeah. That was well, it. That's, that's how I was able to, to pass it fairly easily. Um, at the time, there were two factors. First of all, Cisco was a router-only company at that point in time. They had not bought any switching infrastructure, so you only had routers to deal with. Um, and the other factor was um, was just as you said. Um, I had just done the um, the iOS rewrite of the parser, and so we were exposed to so many of the commands in doing that that. Um, I just knew what they were, where they were, that sort of thing. So it made it that made it easier for me because I knew the breadth of all the commands. Well, the other thing that made it a little easier, well, you actually had access to the to the documentation. So if you were good at finding things in the documentation, which many of the TAC engineers were, because we spent a lot of time looking stuff right. up. But the other thing was the rewrite of the parser made it easier to actually find things in the on the command line. And so you could get command completion and, and help and see right. what parameters were. Whereas in the the prior to the parser rewrite, it was you know, type it in and pray. And yeah, you had to memorize you got it. it right, or maybe you got it wrong, and you would have to just dump the config out to see what whether your commands were correct or not. And um, and you didn't know it, there was no really rejecting commands. It was you put the command in. If it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. So, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah, I mean, that's that's what that's a lot of what it was. It was basically life as a TAC engineer translated into a certification, 
which was which was interesting. So, Terry, I see you wrote something about numbering. So, what's that about? What happened with the numbering system that you? Oh, uh, yeah, I was having this conversation on LinkedIn with Scott Edwards today, and and um, I had always thought, okay, so the, the numbers start with the lab receiving the number ten twenty four. That's two to the tenth. Okay, so one zero two four. And I figured, okay, that's just kind of the secret handshake. He said, no, actually, the real reason was um, because this is a killer, it hurts exam. A killer hurts oh, exam. <laughs> Bad networking humor. And, and and, exactly. And I'll tell you that the, the number for 1024 came, I, I still remember it came later that the, they, they went back and said, oh, we'll, number, we'll use 1024 on the lab. We, we were, we're not going to start numbering. Um, you know, we give Stuart 1025 because well, we we're going to say 1024 is the first starting point. But I don't remember them ever really putting the, the, the plaque on the lab until much, much later. And somebody said, hey, well, we can give 1024 to the lab. No, I, I actually saw a plaque there. And, and Scott said that um, they actually created, uh, created one. If you go take a look on the Net Craftsman blogs, yeah. you can, there's a, a picture of a plaque there. Scott said... That's not the original plaque because yeah. it says routing and switching. Cisco had no switching at the time. Right. So the original that he drafted did not say routing and switching. It had the, the round emblem and it just had a date where your name goes. So yeah. the one that's in that picture that is, was supposedly in, in uh, Building K is not the original plaque that he had commissioned. And then um, I got 1026, and I, f I do not remember whether they gave me the number as I left that day or contacted me later. Um, I, sorry, it, it was. I didn't, I didn't get my number until I got my plaque, pretty much. I know, I know that, that I know that I always thought that Stuart was was not wholly truthful in saying that it was a coincidence that his CCIU number and his employee number were the same. Because his employee <laughs> number was 1025. And I think just so it was easy to remember, he said, well, we'll just start at 1025 and make up a story about what 1024 was. So, <laughs> is that lore? I don't know. But uh, he, he denied it. He always said it was a coincidence. But No, I actually saw the plaque on the, on the door in the lab that I went into. Was, was that was that in Raleigh or was that in San Jose? No, that was San. Uh, yeah, San Jose. San Jose. Yeah, I don't think Raleigh was around yet. Yeah, Raleigh wasn't around until the Hardwood Hotel. Yeah, that wasn't around until the IBM days. Right. Yeah, I don't think Raleigh actually opened a campus, and I don't think Cisco opened a campus in Raleigh until ninety four or ninety three. Might have been ninety five because when I first started at Cisco in ninety six. It was the Hardwood Hotel, and it was only two buildings. And when I after I started, we we um, opened the Lakeside Lounge, and uh, so Hardwood was the first building, and Lakeside was the second. And uh, they moved tack to Lakeside uh, after a while. We stayed in Hardwood for a long time. So another, sorry, another interesting story on the the numbering stuff is is. Um, I've had a couple of times where somebody said, yeah, I'm at CCIE number. And they, they throw out this number that's less than 1024. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay. Next topic. That's enough. on that. <laughs> I think the thing that, that is, that is interesting. You, you go back and you talk about the early days of networking or large scale networking. And um, in those days, the guys who ran the networks, built the networks there was no there was only it was always just the networking guys right and they, they had to know everything and they had to do that and there was no network design there was right. no network operations there was no network engineering right. there was just and i think that guys. and i think that that's where over time people uh, when we as the industry started to verge where there were people who operated in networks and people who designed the networks i think the, the, that's where this divergence, when this divergence happened, there was always this assumption, well, if somebody has a CCID, they know how to design a network. And that was probably true in the early days, right? But as more and more people were just operators and they were good at operations, right? 
configuration right. and troubleshooting. The the assumption that they could design a good network because they had a CCIE no longer really held merit anymore, which is one of the reasons we got the, the, the CCDE exam, right? Because we had employers coming to Cisco going, your CCIEs don't know how to design networks. And so we, we want to know how, that we can have people who design networks. But I think it comes from that early days where the, the network engineer did everything they, because yep. there was nobody else to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a CCIE design at one time. For about five minutes, I think it was, right? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly did last. Who's the, who's, the only, who's the only person to work on CCIE design and CCDE? No idea. Bill Parkhurst. Oh, Bill Parkhurst. I didn't know yeah. he was involved in CCA design. Yes, he was. That's that's fairly interesting. That's a bit of trivia. <laughs> so we should do a history of the CCD and CCAR show at some point. Or we could just yeah. talk about it because there's two of us here who are on that team, um, for better or worse. So yeah. So um so where do you think, I mean, where do you think it goes from here? I mean, do you think that I hear a lot of people, what would your answer be? I hear people saying things like, oh, the CCIE is just not worth it anymore. I mean, why bother? And I know that the three of us at least have been certified for, I don't know, getting on 25 years for you and, and Terry and yeah. well over 20 for me, keeping up my certification. Um, now I'll say that I don't, you probably don't take the research exam, right, Bruce? I haven't in a number of years because of, yeah. of content contribution in, in other right. programs. That's what I was going to say. So, so it is, yeah. The work in the other programs does tend to take up the slack and and doing the recertification exam. I mean, but what would your answer be today? Like, Well, let me give you my experience at my, my current employer. So we deployed, we deployed Cisco ACI. We front-ended it with, with automation, both both um, automation that can be used by the by the application ops teams, um, so that they can figure all their overlay stuff through automation, um, and all the underlay stuff is is managed through scripting run by the network op network team, right? And so we're really out of the business of configuring the network anymore. Mm -hmm. We the controller takes care of that. Um, we still go in and look at configs to see if there are sometimes if it did something get configured as a consistency yeah. throughout the, the the infrastructure, but we don't touch a keyboard anymore. But the, here's the the thing, even with the automation on top of this and, and the you know the 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 different language of, of Cisco ACI, under the hood at the end of the day, it's still VXLAN running on top of an IP network that's, that's running ISIS and BGP. And my concern is, is that as we move forward with in these paradigms and, and people will continue to run their own networks, even with public compute, it's like, you need to understand all those underlying concepts and how to troubleshoot them and how to, to figure out what's going wrong. So what, what needs to change in the CCIE program so that we continue to know that these people understand what's going on under the hood. So what would you say, Terry? What do you think? <laughs> I think exactly that. Um, I've written about it in some blogs on how, um, what are you doing with automation and, uh, and is the CCIE program still viable? And yeah, it, it, we need people that understand how the engine works in this thing. Um, yeah, we have people that know how to polish the car and, and put oil in it and things like that. Um, but you better have somebody that understands how that fuel injected engine works. And even in public compute, we, what we find is um, that, yeah, you don't run the infrastructure yourself, but a lot all the logical concepts are still there. About you're networks. still building a network on top. You're still building a network. You're just doing it logically, um, much in the same way we're doing it in our data center today through through um, you know through our automation and and knowing the right things to do and understanding how BGP works and and um, all of that is still important, you know. And I I, I worry that that there's this perception that. Um, the skills that you develop to pass CCIE aren't valuable anymore. And I, I don't think that that's really the case. I, I think they're valuable in a different way uh, in that, like you said, uh, when you talk about, or when you look at a section of a network, it's being built with a controller. Um, but the, but the reality is, is that 
we're adding complexity and depth into networks we couldn't before. Like, because manual configuration of the overlays and all these interaction points just would have been unwieldy to do by hand. So now, well, we have automation, but now it's becoming even more complex. So being able to look at that system and be able to understand it, you know, is a skill in and of itself. But there's no one controller that runs them all. And so the idea that you, you talked about cloud connectivity, you know, public cloud, you talked about, you know, ACI or whatever data center infrastructure, but these things all have to get stitched together still. That we still, we still have to connect your ACI to your public cloud, to your enterprise WAN. And the funny land and, the, and the, all the same skills that we've been talking about forever. And the funny thing is, is, is just that. So if you, it, it's been publicly announced for a long time, our, my company's intention to move everything to, to, to public compute. And in fact, we just sold, sold the only data center we own and are leasing back space as Colo. But there was this perception that we're never going to have to run any other infrastructure. And yet we have partners we have um, other colo facilities. We have uh, the requirement to host third-party CPE devices, and it's like, yeah, we got to run a network still. We st- we still we, we we may have everything that can be public compute, but ne- we still got to run a network because we still have private communication requirements that the public compute can't take care of. So, um, whether it's in data center infrastructure or public compute infrastructure, it doesn't matter. We, we still we still have the requirement to run networks. Yeah, agreed. I think for the for the relevant for the relevance of the CCI moving forward, I think that there has to be some acknowledgement of the fact that you know we we got to stop making it a feature test. Um, like it's it needs to be a fundamental test, and it needs to kind of go back to what you guys were talking about and the idea of we're testing really practical skills, right? Um, Troubleshooting, right? Because yeah, I think it's been sitting on that edge of you still learn the fundamental skills. Like, I mean, like if you go through the CCIE today, you're still learning BGP at a deep level. You're learning your early routing protocols. Mm-hmm. You're learning how layer two works. I mean, you're learning all these things that matter because that they're out there in the real world. So it, those things are there. We got to remove maybe some of the, the feature specific stuff and maybe spend a little more time on interaction services with automation and how those things work. And I think it's heading there, it's just slow, right? And I yeah. think any certification program is going to be slow to respond. There's this real, there was a fundamental shift um, that happened when when they merged the CCNA program and, and it's associ- the associate stuff with CCIE because they've been run by different organizations. CCA was developed by TAC, run and administered by TAC people, and the, uh, the, the other programs were developed outside of TAC. When they merged everything together, and, and then as time went along, there was this struggle back and forth between how much of Cisco-specific stuff goes into the exam, because we want to push our features, we want to push our, our capabilities, and how much it should, should be about just pure technology. And um, I think that, the, that as many of the old time people that we, we, we were there trying to push for more, um, it's about the technologies, it's not about the features that implement them. And so um, we, we talk about not doing a feature test, I was like, I don't know why we had, uh, at one point we had CSA uh, service provider as like uh, being done on XR, right? And I was like, oh, we need, we need XR because the BGP is different. I'm like, no, the BGP is not different. Yeah. BGP works exactly the same. The implementation is different. So you can use some configuration a little different. So what? I can, I can pick that up very quickly. I can pick up troubleshooting it very quickly. But, but the fundamentals of BGP don't change because of the operating system. And that, that, I didn't win that, that particular battle. They said, nope, we're going to have XR. So there's always this, this, this balance between what the marketing and the, and the, and the business units want and what the, the technology-sided people want. And I, I think I don't know that they've walked that line very well all the time. Yeah. In fact, that's probably one of the reasons for the origin of the CCD as well. I mean, there were just like the CCIE, I'm sure there are many mixed motivations around the origin of the CCDE. And one of them is, you know, I know that we were all tired of like having to learn Cisco specific stuff so we could get recertified all the time. Honestly, it was mm-hmm. like, I don't need to know XR command line that well. Um, I need to know the technologies. So why don't we do a certification that's technology oriented and is specifically vendor agnostic? as much as possible. And I think that's, that's one of the, another one of the reasons that um, the DE came about when it came about. Yeah. And the recertification exams, I've been a proponent of doing something similar to what the, uh, 
FAA and the, um, I guess it's the Coast Guard that does um, maritime captain certifications. They publish their entire question pool with answers. Um, now, the question pool is not 400 questions. The answer pool is thousands of questions. I maintain that if you understand and, and know the answers and can answer 2,000, 5,000 questions, then you probably know the material. That or you have a phenomenal memory. And by the time you can answer all of those, you probably have absorbed enough of it that you're at the right <laughs> I'd be curious to get your guys' take on this with with the with the written side of things as a pre qualifier. I mean, there's been calls to to have it removed altogether. Or there's you, know, no. you talk about pools. You don't think so? You think there still needs to be pre qualification? There needs to be some sort of pre qualification. You get people to walk in. Um, I mean, we saw it in the training side when I was running a training business. Uh, we get people walking into the advanced troubleshooting class who had never touched a Cisco box. They just have a lot of hubris. Or their boss sent them. Okay, yeah, I have training money to burn. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'm yeah. going to send you to this class. And, oh, this yeah. is the next class coming up. Yeah. Or, here, I'm going to send you in to go, go take this test. And it, it uses seats that people who are truly qualified need to use. Yeah. Okay, well, so you think there's a scaling issue. I mean, I guess the, the counter to that is that it's become such a trivia exam that you know and that's and that's why i think that if you were to publish a, a, a big list of valid questions and i write questions for the ccie exam all the time that's that's part of how i do my material development just like bruce does um the content development yeah. and i try to make them relevant and make sure that the answers are relevant and they're not trivia um, I also review questions from time to time. And it's funny, I ran into one that was a BGP undocumented feature. And I'm sure all the other reviewers that looked at that question said, oh, fine, this is great. This is a really good question. And I looked at it and went, you can't answer this question. It's not documented. You have to go on the web and find it. And it's a hidden command. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's part of the, the challenge of writing content, though, is um, I mean, for example, we there was a, a very rampant cheating problem um, before we redesigned the, the exam in, in late 2009. And there was someone had the brilliant idea that um, they would ask questions of the day in person uh, of people. And those questions would rotate every day. And that way, no one would know walking in what the question would be. And it was designed to be something so basic that if you couldn't answer the question, you, we knew you would, were here to cheat, right? And But the problem was is cycling um, questions every day in all these different labs <laughs> got to be to the point where they, you had to create trivia questions or people were creating questions that they thought were relevant, but they were so minutiae that it made no sense. And so we finally got them to discontinue that. But but that's the challenge in constantly writing content is how the balance between having relevant content that isn't trivia or minutiae and 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 having enough content that's relevant for, to, to maintain multiple copies of the exam. Right. Uh, both written and and, and uh, the it's practical. A, it's a it's a war between the cheaters and the test question writers, and the problem is, no matter how big you think the pool of knowledge really is, even the CCIE covers the CCDE CCAR. They all cover a limited amount of material. They just do. Right. And there's, there's a finite pool. Okay. It's a two-edged sword, and now we're getting into the to the merits of certification. But it's a two-edged <laughs> sword, right? Because the more esoteric you make the questions, the more it actually necessitates some more. Not necessitates. I mean, you have to make that decision yourself. But the idea of to pass the exam, you have to either take six cracks at it to get an idea what the pool actually looks like, so you know what to study, or you know. Uh, you, you cheat. I mean, those are the two options, right? Like you, you take multiple cracks. I mean, so the, the exam today isn't as bad as it was like two or three years ago, uh, two or three years ago, the, the, the written exam was a mess. Like you, like there was nobody I knew who was smart multi-year CCIs who were passing the exam. Everyone was failing it. Oh no, we went, and it, this is, yeah. yeah this and, is, it, and it just drives people happened. to cheat. Like it, it has the exact opposite effect that I think that's the intended result. Yeah. Um, and so when, and so I see this too, like I, the continuing education thing is, I think is fantastic only because of the fact that now there's a method to do it. If you don't want to go through the, 
the rat race of taking the written again. Like I can go learn something new or, you know, if you're CCA, yeah. you can go learn something new. Yeah. It costs a lot more money than what taking the test does, but that, you know, it's, it's not, you know, you don't have to deal with the whole, the whole nonsense. And then we can have the pre-qualifier maybe we can be, you know, less concerned about making yeah. it, you know, this esoteric question pool. I had hoped that um, one of the goals that of having virtualized the exam that, that I thought would come out of it. And I don't know that it was successful was there was, only at the time before virtualization, there was like 10 devices on a rack. And there were only, let's say, six different devices or six different versions of the exam, if there were that many, right? So usually you're talking about 60 devices, right? And and it would be very easy to game the system there by sending enough people through memorizing what the, the versions of the exam were. One of the, my hopes was that by building virtualization, we could make more put more complexity into it. So when we started with troubleshooting, there were 30 devices in every troubleshooting lab. And my my hope had been that by having so many more devices and having more realistic scenarios, and then particularly once they virtualized the um the um um, config section doing that same thing that you could go from having, uh, you know, 60 device, 60 different device configurations in total across the entire exam to having hundreds or thousands of different combinations of all these different devices. But the, the challenge I think has been is um, writing enough different versions of the exam to make that possible. So again, it goes back to that con creating enough relevant content to, to achieve that kind of a goal. And uh, I don't know that, I don't know that it's been, it ever panned out the way I was hoping it might. Yeah. yeah I've had a, a similar thing on the, the question, the, the, the qualification test side of things, Bruce, which was um, pick in topics. Okay. So what, what are the subjects that you need to understand? Okay. So there's BGP and confederations, let's mm -hmm. say, um, go write 10 to 20 questions around confederations and then put yeah. that in the pool. Go, go do the same thing for route reflectors. Yeah. Right. And That's go hard. Re repeat That's that really practice. Hard. Right. Go repeat yeah. that, that creating these questions. Okay all the time or, or until you develop this pool that's, you know, okay, so let's say we have a hundred different topics we're going to test on. Now we have 10 questions behind each of those topics. So now we have a thousand question pool. Yeah. So yeah. similar kind of concept, but on the qualification test versus the, the real hands-on test. One of the things that uh, um, I'll, I'll give you another trivia thing here for us at dawn. I mean, we were talking about the virtualization. One of the things that we were, um, we were hoping with, with the virtualization we were going to be able to do is that you know, we no longer need like a physical, have a, a hands-on physical presence anymore. So in, in 2009, when we were doing the, the virtualization, we, um, we ran some test trials, um, one in Seattle and one in, um, in London for actually delivering the CSA exam remotely um, and not in the traditional Pearson testing centers, but in their professional testing centers, the ones where they do like nursing tests and, and other kinds of real professional tests. So it's high security. Um, they lock, um, they, you know, lock your stuff. You walk in and hand over your, your keys and your cell phone and all that kind of stuff. They lock it up. They watch you in cameras and that kind of stuff. And, um, we really, we, we, it was, it was a, a rocky test, but it, it had held promise and we were going to hopefully be able to make it so you didn't have to go to one of six places and two things would happen. One, there would be more people who could, could take it because it was closer to where they lived. And two, people would try recertification sooner because they didn't spend thousands of dollars traveling to get to, to, to take the exam. And then it might be less stressful for people because they're not, they're not traveling. Um, they're in their hometown. They sleep in their, in their home, in their bed. You know, um, but the thing that um, one of the things that derailed that was was the miss the 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 missing proctor, and people have this still have this this lore around the proctor and interacting with the proctor and and hopefully getting clarification from things from the proctor, and and there was this still this nostalgia associated with with the proctoring of the exam. And I still find that interesting because the proctors never tell you anything. They, they, they really, 
they can't they can't really guide you in any way and it's so it's kind of like i'm not sure under, understanding what that allure is still within the nostalgia of the proctor yeah it's kind of weird well we're almost at an hour believe it or not well we're at 48 minutes so that's really cool so um bruce what we should do is do a show on history of ccde at some point as well in the future in ccar because that's pretty that sounds, as well. that sounds good yeah, that's cool. And Terry, thanks for coming on. We're going to have you back on to talk about the history of the CLI, because I think you were involved in that to some degree. And I can whine about how Parser Police lost its teeth. Parser Police? <laughs> was there such a thing? Yes, there was. There was. Uh, there no. was. I, I think the only Parser Police that existed was one person. But anyway, we can have a discussion <laughs> on that later. <laughs> Good so, one. So we can do that. Well, for everybody who's watching this, thanks for uh, watching uh, the history of networking. And um, Terry, where can people find you? I know you blog at Netcraftsman, and I'm pretty sure you have a Twitter account, right? No, I don't have a Twitter account. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I blog at Netcraftsman. I blog at NoJitter.com. I've been doing some blogging over at Tech Target, so okay. you can find me at all of those places. And LinkedIn, I assume Facebook well, or LinkedIn. Okay. LinkedIn. All right. And Bruce. You can find me uh, on LinkedIn and Facebook, um, or you can email me um, at BEP at Pinsky.us. But I don't do any blogging. I, I did all of my writing when I wrote my books and I ran out of things to say. So I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't blog. <laughs> this is my problem. I keep, I, I've never run out of things to say. I think that says something about me. <laughs> We're not going to go there. <laughs> and Jordan, where can people find you? Uh, I also ran out of things to say, but I have a blog anyway. Uh, <laughs> Jordan, at, at BC Jordan on Twitter, uh, obviously here at the Network Collective. And I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech at the Network Collective. You can find me on Twitter at Routing Geek, LinkedIn, whatever, whatever. I don't have a Facebook account, so don't look for me there. So thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time on the Network Collective. Thanks. Thanks.